0: listening to Historical Fiction Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Today I'll be speaking with Barbara J. Taylor. Barbara is working on the third book in a trilogy that she's writing. Her first two books are Sing in the Morning, Cry at Night, and All Waiting is Long. Both of those titles come from Welsh Proverbs. So, her first book was a 2014 Publisher's Weekly Best Summer Book and Book of the Week. Um, And it was also nominated for a 2014 Lime Award for Excellence in Fiction. I read both of these books, the first two in her trilogy, and they were excellent. Um, Also, they're set in my area of the United States. Um, I live near Scranton, Pennsylvania, and so does Barbara. And her books are both based in that area. So that was a lot of fun. And you'll hear in our conversation today, some of the things we mentioned are things specific to that area, to the Scranton area. Um, but our conversation ranges from talking about eugenics and racism to using only primary sources for research, and as well as our writing styles. Barbara and I get into that a little bit. So I think you're going to enjoy it. So here's my conversation with Barb. Okay, Barbara J. Taylor, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so I hear you have two wonderful novels out. I've read both of them and they're they're so good. Um Thank your you. first yeah, your first book, Sing in the Morning, Cry at Night, was a 2014 publisher's weekly Best Summer Book and Book of the Week. Correct. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's it. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Can you tell me about this novel? Sure. Uh, My first novel I
1: wrote while I was at Wilkes University for their creative writing program. And um, we had to come up with an idea for the project we work on. And I kept thinking about this family story that I heard growing up about my grandmother's sister, Pearl, who – was burned on the 4th of July, the same day as her baptism. And she survived for three days and sang hymns. So by the time she passed away, everybody in town, it just it took on sort of, uh, you know, a larger-than-life quality, and they wanted to see the little girl who sang hymns. So I always had that story in my head, and I decided to use that as inspiration for my first novel. Um so it it does sort of it starts with the death of the little girl it's actually 2 months after but it also it's set in Scranton in 1913 so it's the time of coal mining evangelism vaudeville and right. it's about a little girl who's blamed for the death of her sister
0: mhm so having it inspired by real by a real event in mm-hmm. your own family's history and such a sad like tragic event. Um, yeah. Can you explain how did it take on a life of its own then when you started writing the novel?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know what? Um, I didn't know this until I met my agent, but she told me there are two types of writers, those who outline and those who write organically. And apparently Mm -hmm. I write organically because so do, do you, Oh, good. Oh, so you understand. Yeah. I, um, I would just go upstairs. This was in my old house and I had an office upstairs and I would go up and just find out what was going to happen next. Just like, you know, the reader does. Um, so I really, you know, it took on a life of its own because I got quiet and I listened to the characters and I let them, I let them take me on the journey. The only thing I knew other than the fact that it would start with the death of the child was that in 1914, there was a blizzard in Scranton. And Mm. it was at the time that an evangelist, Billy Sunday, came to town. and yeah, every time there's a snowstorm in Scranton, people talk about it. Um, so that night, 2,500 people were snowed in with the evangelist and the story always goes that by morning, everybody was saved. He was so charismatic. (laughs) Yeah. I always love that. Uh, so I knew the book would somehow end in around that time period. I knew I wanted to bring the snowstorm into it and, um, so so basically, the book took on a life of its own, but it was always going toward that snowstorm. I didn't know how okay. the snowstorm would affect the story, but I knew it was going to be there.
0: That's cool. So the date that it happened isn't the same in the book as as in the real life event, right? The, the, the
1: snowstorm is the exact, the, the correct saying, date. But, but the yeah, in real life, my Aunt Pearl was burned in 1918. And I start the story in 1913. But I did do the research. Um, sparklers were available and, and all right. of that. Um, so it, it worked out that way. But because I wanted to incorporate the snowstorm, yeah, I had to push it back a little bit.
0: Right. So how did you decide? I mean, did the characters just tell you their names? And because I know I noticed you left their last name the same, but you changed their (laughs) first names.
1: Yeah. uh, Morgan, I guess, just stuck because that was my grandmother's maiden name and that was the name of the family. Um, Right. The names, it kind of depends. The, The daughters, it's Violet and Daisy. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, eventually as, as the stories go on, there's another daughter named Lily. And I just, um, you know, part of it, I did some research as to what names were popular at the time, but then also there was a woman in my church named Violet Williams and Violet, Mm -hmm. before she passed away, recorded her life story on cassette tapes. And her daughter gave me a copy of those tapes. And they were fascinating because it was a lot of research on the church. But it was also just a sense of, um, you know, she was the same age as my Violet. So I was getting a lot of good information. And so I think it was the blend. I liked the name anyway. But if I had to think back, it was probably because I knew that Violet. And she was a friend of my mother's. So it was a nice nod. Most of the characters in my books, the names, uh, are of people I know. I I think of book one is a a love poem to my, my family and friends because I use all of their names in funny ways. I mix them up. I mix first and last names. I, you know, uh, I, I I do not necessarily give everybody loving, wonderful characters, you know, I had a good time with it. My father enjoyed right. the fact that he's the um, a guy who runs the cockfights at the horse track and that he'd sell his <laughs> own mother down the river for a buck. So he, yeah, he always oh. enjoyed that. So, you know, I had a good time with it. I really did.
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's great. That must be a lot of fun for your family and friends reading the book then.
1: It is. It is. I think so. In the second book, it opens at the Good Shepherd Infant Asylum, where wayward girls, girls who are unmarried and pregnant, go to have their babies. And uh, all the characters there are uh, some of my dearest friends, and they're women that I used to teach with. So it's just, yeah, populated with all my teacher friends. (laughs) So they're all, all, you know, young, unmarried girls who are pregnant. So they had a lot of fun with that. (laughs)
0: i bet so i was i was curious since this was inspired by a real event um did you have any concerns about using a family story as the basis for the book or or how did family members respond to it
1: yeah you know what it's funny because um even as a kid i was writing about my aunt pearl i was always a very dramatic Mm -hmm. kid i think i liked the you know just examining the tragedy. Um, so I was always fascinated with it, but when I decided to write the book, the only, my grandmother's only living sibling, uh, was Wheezy. We called her my aunt Louise. And, um, she was actually born after my aunt Pearl. So she never knew her sister, but of course she grew up knowing about the situation. And I went and talked to Wheezy to see if she'd be comfortable with this. I probably would have written the story after she passed away. I think I would have written it eventually. Um, right. But I would not have written it while she was alive if uh, that would have bothered her. And she was, she was fine with it. She was very okay. supportive. She was just a great woman. Uh, so that was the only permission I felt like I had to get. I right. will admit I didn't. Talk to other relatives about it, my dad certainly knew I was writing the book. He was an incredible resource for me. Um, mm-hmm. He helped me with my research so much we'd drive around he'd show me where the mines were, he'd tell me old stories. uh My sister knew you know there were people who knew about it, but I didn't really talk about it with extended family until it was published. Um, I just didn't want anybody saying, "Oh, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that." I got permission right. from my grandmother's sister. And that's what I really felt I needed.
0: Right. Well, that that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And everybody was really supportive, everybody in my family. Um, In fact, I went to a, a, a funeral at one point for a distant relative and met other relatives, but they all had the same, the Morgan name, and they were all thrilled and excited about it. So I have to say everybody has been incredibly supportive.
0: Okay, that's great.
1: Yeah. In fact, I have to say, um, other families have even sort of claimed the book. I have a character, Stanley Adamsky in there. And yeah. I did a, I, I went and did a talk at a high school one time, and the chorus teacher tracked me down because she wanted me to know that she went to church with the Adamsky family that's in my book. And she went on and on about how they have confirmed this, that and the other thing from the book. And I mean, I, I made them up. So <laughs> um, I, and I told her, I said, don't tell them, let them let them think it's their relative. If it makes them happy, more power. Right. To them. But uh, yeah, so you know, it's funny, people see themselves, they see their families. And um, I love it. I love that's, the people.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I love that character. Well, I love him in the first book, but that might be a good segue to tell me about All Waiting is Long, which that released in 2016, right? Right.
1: So it's a sequel to the first book, but I try to write the books so that they stand alone. So you don't have to read one to get the other, that sort of thing. But I knew that this family had more to say. I um, early on decided to make it a trilogy, but I didn't want it to open with uh, poor Violet, who was is nine years old at the end of the book. And now the next day, something else happens. I, I wanted to give her a little breathing room there. So mm-hmm. it opens, you know, about 20 years later, give or take, but she's 25 years old then. So we get to see Violet when she's eight and nine, then we get to see her when she's 25. And in the book I'm writing now, she's actually 50. But oh, so the no. second book, All Waiting is Long, um, it opens at the good shepherd infant asylum. And, uh, so we're in Philadelphia. I put the, I put the, um, the asylum in Philadelphia. And then, uh, five years later, we're back in Scranton and, um, Violet has a sister, Lily, and she causes some problems. And, her relationship with Stanley is not quite as pleasant as it was in book one, but uh, yeah, yeah. you know you get a whole different take on on what their lives are like. Um, and this one, it's the 1930s, so uh, partially the Great Depression. You get the backdrop in this one of some mobsters, some prostitutes, yes. still the church women. So it's kind of an interesting. Uh, it, it's it, to my way of thinking, every book you know, if you're, if you're thinking of a a camera, you're pulling back on the shot and the world is getting larger for them.
0: Mm, So,
1: um, that was sort of the intention with that one.
0: Right. What was your inspiration for the second one? I know you, you said you felt like there was more to come with the family. How did you come up with the idea of what happened with, um, Lily and Violet in the second book?
1: You know, I'm not even sure. I have to think about that. Um, can I say what happens? I don't know if you want me to give away to your listeners. <laughs> um, th- there's a baby involved,
0: right? Yeah. I mean, that's toward the beginning, so you're going to know that,
1: right? Right. So, quickly. so there is a baby involved. The two sisters, Lily and Violet, go to the infant asylum because Lily is pregnant
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and unmarried. I'm not really sure. I just always knew Violet's character. I think by the time I got to book two, the characters had lives of their own. Yes. I saw them as fully fleshed separate from my family. Not to mm-hmm. say that I don't draw from my family and my own life experiences for the book, but I feel like they they took me on their own journey by book two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I... Um, it, it mirrored anything in my real life. Right. At least not in the
0: big picture. Mm-hmm. But the whole, the infant asylum, was that a real place? Was-
1: the infant asylum in my book is not a real place, but back then they used to, if a girl went to have a baby that was going to be given up for adoption, uh, they called them asylums or, oh, there was another good word. They also called them maternity hospitals, but, mm. um, I liked, I just liked the sound of asylum, um, yeah. in Scranton, I based it off of St. Joseph's in Scranton, St. Right. Joseph's maternity hospital, where girls would go when they were pregnant and they could sort of hide out because you didn't, you know, let the world know and, uh, have their babies and they'd be given up for adoption. So I wanted, I wanted Violet and Lily to go away. So I didn't want them to go to St. Joe's, but I based it on St. Joe's. And from anything I've ever read, and from people who have worked there and so on, um, St. Joe's was a loving place. It's you know, you Mm -hmm. read these books, there are stories about these nuns who were so abusive or critical, it was nothing like that. And I wanted to, you know, really make it a loving place. You weren't quite sure at the beginning with, uh, you know, Sister Mary Joseph, but, you know, you you eventually learn she's a kind woman. Um, Yeah, so it was it was basically based on St. Joseph's, but I I placed it in Philadelphia because I wanted them to go away.
0: Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes
1: sense. Yeah. And then, I mean, I knew I knew Lily was pregnant. That's what I knew at the beginning of the book. I knew Violet was probably going to, um, you know, not want to leave the baby there, but mm-hmm. I didn't know anything else. So, because there was a pregnancy involved, I started researching how you would give birth at that time. I mean. Just what the medical procedures would be. And I had all of these medical books that I bought on eBay and realized one day that all of the books were published by the American Eugenics Society. And I really, I knew I heard the word eugenics, but I didn't really, I I just wasn't making the connection. And um, so then I started researching and realized the eugenics movement of creating the perfect race, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of Hitler and all of that um, was really, you know, uh, horrifyingly and interestingly promoted by the United States. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the German scientists were piggybacking off of our research. Oh, wow. So when I realized eugenics was was so important at the time, I mean, uh, Protestant ministers were preaching it from the pulpits, and they were having wow. contests for the best sermons. And at county fairs, they had contests for, um, it was the Fitter Family Contest, and oh it was, goodness. who was the best white family? I mean, uh-huh. the racism was just Wow! completely overt. Yeah. And um, again, as horrifying as that all was, as a writer, I just thought, oh, this is really some good stuff to dig into. So that's yeah. when I, it, it, I, just, I came up with Dr. Peters, who works at uh, the um, asylum, but he is secretly uh, involved in the eugenics movement. Right. So- That's where that all came from. So a lot of, you know, when you say where does the story come from and how did you get from point A to point B? For me, it's when I start to do the research because Mm -hmm. I only use primary sources. Um, I don't read a book today about what Scranton was like back then or what eugenics was like back then because, you know, a they could have gotten it wrong, and I Mm -hmm. don't want to get it wrong. Or B I just don't want their spin on it so I read the original articles the original books and oftentimes they dictate what happens next they inspire me
0: Right well that's good it it seems like it would keep that so much more authentic if you're reading original sources and
1: yeah I think so. I really do I just I don't know why I made that decision with the first book but i I did i I was a teacher i'm I'm retired now but I was a high school English teacher for over thirty mm-hmm. years so you know teaching research papers and how to do research and all that I think that was stuck in my head and then again mm-hmm. uh, when I got my MFA at Wilkes they were very much about how to um you know, get authentic research, how to do the research and do it right. So I think between all of that, at some point I decided just to use the primary sources.
0: Right. So can you expand on what your research process is like, other than what you've mentioned already?
1: Yeah, um, I would say my whole writing process is half- literally writing and half researching. Mm -hmm. And I consider it all writing, you know, like if I spend a day researching, I feel like I've worked on the book that day, even though I may not have written a word. But um, I've spent time at the Historical Society in Scranton, the Lackawanna Historical Society, the uh, public library in Scranton, the Albright Memorial Library downtown. Um, I've gone to the Mine museum. Uh, they have books there, you have to put the gloves on, and you're very careful, they bring them out to you. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also, I have to say, you know, I'm not sure if I would have been able to write these books before the internet, because that's been so helpful. I am able to you know newspapers.com is just it's a yes. gold mine
0: i love that resource
1: yeah i mean i can just and luckily you know when i wrote the first and second book the scranton newspapers only went up to the 1930s and at some point they now are completely up to date so i've been mm. able to research online for the third book as well um uh, the other place i would say uh, a great place to get research uh is ebay i mean oh. I will, you know, with the first book, for example, um, at the beginnings of certain sections, I use a quote from Mrs. Joe's housekeeping guide, just to give yeah. you a sense of the time period. Well, that's a book that I happened to buy from eBay. It was falling apart. I didn't buy it for its value. I bought it because I just wanted to, to get a sense of the times. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it ended up in my book. It was such a good resource. Yeah. So you never know. You just never know. Right. That's um, true. Yeah. Um, a medical book from, uh, that time for, for the second book, I used a medical book in the same way using quotes from that at the beginning to give you the sense of what was happening with eugenics and all of that. Um, so yeah, I get my resources all over the place, but I would say eBay and, um, newspapers.com are my two primary sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, I just bought some sort of a... um, It's not a phone book, uh, but it has addresses and everything. I'm trying to see it from here, but I don't want to walk over there and mess up the recording. But um, it's for Scranton. And so it's from 1954. So now when I'm looking for a business for this third book, I'm looking for Mm -hmm. names. I just open that up and I can see, oh, who was on Main Street? Who was... you know, What businesses were on Wyoming Avenue? So I really... I I really do make every effort to make the research authentic. Um, you know, it is fiction, but I, I mean, I travel those streets. I walk those streets. I research everything before it goes into the book so right. that it's authentic.
0: Yeah, that's good. Okay. So you mentioned the third book. Can you tell us about it? Can you, what Sure. Can you
1: share? Um, So it's called Rain Breaks No Bones. It's Mm -hmm. an old Welsh proverb. At least that's the working title. We'll see what the publisher says. Um,
0: The first first book is also a Welsh. Yeah, they're all three of them. All three of them. Okay. Yeah.
1: Sing in the morning, cry at night is a variation of a Welsh proverb. So then the second one, all waiting is long. That's a Welsh proverb. Mm -hmm. It's a Welsh family. So I'm just, I'm sticking with it for the series. Um, The third book opens in 1955. So Scranton is a little bit different. You know, in 1913, it was its heyday. Um, In the 30s, we had the Depression. Now in 1955, when you open a newspaper, it tells you which mines are open on what days. So the mines aren't even running at full tilt anymore. Uh, Gas has really taken over as a fuel source. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see the decline. You're starting to see... People moving away for jobs. You're starting to see um, just that decline. Uh, right. By in at the end of 1954, the last streetcar ran. So some of the things that were elements in the other books, there you 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 see that they're they've disappeared. Um, this book opens in 1955. Uh, the there was a flood in August. Hurricane Diane in our area and okay. Hurricane Diane lives were lost in Scranton. More lives were lost in the Poconos. There was mm-hmm. a either a Boy Scout camp or a Sunday school uh, camp, but the children ended up dying in the flood because the the building was washed away. I think about 40 of them, something like that. It was pretty tragic. So this is an event that people talk about. So what I do try to do with each of my books is not only make sure the details are accurate, but also that there's an an actual event that happened in Scranton. And so for this one, I'm, I'm working toward hurricane Diane. Um, Mm -hmm. And at this point, You know, I'm 57, had to think about that for a second. So I kind of like getting to know Violet in her 50s and seeing what her story is. And her daughter is 25, so we get to see what's going on in the younger world as well. Um, This book also incorporates race, and I always knew I was going to do that. Uh, I I knew that from the first book. Like I said before, their worlds keep getting bigger and this is sort of the pre official civil rights movement i mean don't take me wrong there was a lot going on to to right. try to get equality but just you know pre um martin luther king where where we really saw uh, the marches and so on um and it's just shy of the death of emmett till that happens a month or two after the book ends. So just to give you a sense of that time period, it's sort of it's ripe for um, this you know, racial awakening, right. um, awareness, but it's, it's just on the cusp. So that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm loving it. I love the idea that I get to uh, write about the same characters, but I'm getting to know them at different points in life. So it's yeah. almost like getting to know different people. It
0: really
1: is, mm-hmm. and there are new now, characters, so that's fun.
0: Oh, there are new characters too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I felt like there was a little not not exactly race, but the ethnic issues in the first book because of the Welsh and the and like um, Stanley, Adamski right. was Polish, <clears throat> so I feel like it was definitely there a little bit. Although it's not as certainly not as um maybe charged as
1: well that's a good word. No, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I mean, Scranton in the early days, uh the neighborhoods, it was you know, the, the Welsh neighborhood and I the know. Polish neighborhood very and the, segregated. Absolutely and, and even today, I mean it's gotten much better. But you still have um, the Polish club and the Taurus club, which is the Lithuanian <laughs> club. And you have, I mean, you still have people sort of holding on to that history. Yeah, and um, there's
0: nothing wrong with like, um, you know, celebrating your... You're no, broke. absolutely
1: not. It's but it you know it, back then it was very it was, it was it was meant to be to exclude right. Um, right. <clears throat> so you know back then I was looking at the dynamic of um, the different ethnic groups and absolutely who was on top who was you know right. who was at the bottom of the ladder. Um, I didn't look at race simply because in 1913 and 1914 and even in the 1930s my characters my welsh family they wouldn't have gone much beyond providence uh right. the, the neighborhood in scranton um so so i you know i knew the world was going to get bigger and they would meet other kinds of people mm-hmm. um i just knew that wasn't going to happen for them until the 50s not to say we didn't have a thriving uh african-american population in scranton before that we we did right. um i don't know if you know uh, um Glennis Jones she has uh an organization called Black Scranton and they're doing great work to show the history of you know um the black experience in Scranton, so right. it was there, but yeah. my particular characters they they didn't really go beyond you know
0: have the boundaries with.
1: of yeah yeah so it wasn't something but it is becoming something in the third book for sure okay yeah
0: that's, that's good i'm just curious after writing three books i don't know how close you are with the third book but do you think you'll be able or do you want to explore different characters or different um a different family do you think your next book after this third one will be completely different or will you be Kind of. It'll,
1: yeah, it'll be different for sure. I always intended this just to be a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first talked to my agent, she talked to me about the fact that a publisher would want you to either stick with the same genre for three books because they're helping you build an audience, or the idea of a trilogy. And I just at the time thought, well, you know what? I think my characters have more to say, so I I committed to the trilogy. And I'm happy I did that. Uh, that said, I always intended to end it in the fifties. Um, -hmm. I have, I have a contemporary novel in mind that Mm. I will write at some point, but in the meantime, uh, without giving too much away, somebody actually at a book club suggested, uh, an idea and, um, something I could research and it just sort of, it's, it stayed with me. So I'm guessing Mm -hmm. book four will probably end up being historical fiction again, because it's just too good of an idea to let go of. But, uh, but I don't, you know, I, I, I set out writing historical fiction because the story I wanted to write had to take place in the past. Um, There was no way to tell this story and have it take place in the 2000s. Um, But not because I'm committed to or tied to historical fiction. I just like Mm -hmm. the idea of writing a good story, something that's character-based. I I definitely, I start with the characters. So yeah, for sure. Um, Book three is still in progress. I'm hoping to finish it up this year. Um, But yeah, I'm already looking ahead to what the next one will be. Um, And I'm, I'm eager to... I'm not, I, I I still love these characters and I'm loving the book that I'm working on. So I don't want it to sound like I'm bored or anything like that. No. But I'm also no. eager to get to know some new characters when the time right. comes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I understand that. <clears throat> um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you got to the point of publishing your first book? I know you mentioned you were doing an MFA at Wilkes University, right?
1: Right. Um, I uh, I, went, I went back to school. I was a teacher and um, I went back to school for my master's at Wilkes, my master's in creative writing. And um, what they do is you, you know, you work on a novel, you work on a book of poetry, whatever, you know, a screenplay, whatever your genre is. And I worked on this novel. And then what they do, what I like about this program is that and, and maybe other programs do this, too. This is the only one I'm familiar with. But they send your manuscript out to an outside reader, somebody who's never seen it before. Um, after you've worked on it with a mentor, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Right. And my outside reader uh, ended up being the woman who is now my agent. So mm-hmm. I was really lucky in that sense that um, Wilkes opened that door for me. And yeah, then that's in, great. Yeah. In the meantime, the first book, she sent it out to maybe 20 or 30 publishers, and it was rejected. It was rejected. Um, Sometimes they gave us a reason, sometimes they didn't. So Mm -hmm. I put that in a drawer and I started working on the next book. And Mm -hmm. when I finished the draft of the second book, my mentor from Wilkes called me one day and she said, I think I figured out what you need to do with the first book. My first book opened on the day of the accident and the first, I don't know, 80 pages or so were all about the day of the accident, the death, the funeral. It was very heavy with all of that. And she said, um, you need to start it two months later. You need to take part two and put that up front. And then you need to take part one and chop it up and drop it through and tell it in flashback. Mm which was a great idea, but it was another year of revision because that wasn't easy to do. No, right. Um, but I did it, and then I sold it. So oh, wow. it it all kind of, you know, it was meant to be. It was meant right. to be for sure. And and I will say um, I ended up selling it. My mentor from Wilkes, Kaylee Jones, who's a writer in her own right and has, uh, you know, she's she's published – novels and memoirs. Her father was James Jones. He wrote From Here to Eternity, The Thin Red Line. So, I mean, her, you know, uh, time in literature goes way back. And she Mm -hmm. started an imprint with Akashic Books. And so, Akashic became my publisher and Kelly Jones Books. So, it all kind of worked together, um, you know, really because of Wilkes. I I have to give Wilkes all the credit.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Worked out that way, and I think that's was probably great advice because even looking back at re- when I read the book, it, the the tragedy with the the girl was so heavy and so sad that I think it would be hard to read it all at once. In the, yeah. in the beginning,
1: and and I wanted it to be, you know, I really do. I think of it as a book of hope. I mean, I think it ends yeah. on a hopeful note. Mm-hmm. They do have this tragedy. But it's, it's moving toward how do you, how do you get beyond that? How do you get over the grief? And, right. um, so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It had to be, it, it, we, we had to pick up on a day in the future before we could look back at, at the heavy stuff for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. But it was, it was a difficult rewrite. I mean, it was a good rewrite, but it's, you know, for example, the one chapter where the little girl has, uh, She's had the accident. The doctor is in the room. And in the initial chapter, I went into the heads of everybody in the room. I went into the head of Daisy. I went into the head of the doctor, the mother, the father, and even Violet, who's playing the piano. Now, the Mm -hmm. piano is up against the wall. And so when I had to do the rewrite, when you're telling something in flashback, it has to be from the point of view of the person who's flashing back. So it has to be a single point of view. So suddenly, I had to rewrite that whole chapter from the point of view of a little girl who's facing the wall because she's playing the piano. So, you know, it's, it, it is a lot of, I mean, it's good work. It's, it's right. I'm not complaining about it, but it it really, it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, but Kelly was absolutely right. That's what it needed. And, and that's why I, I think you always, you know, you find a mentor, you find somebody you can trust who, who can, Work through a story with you because, um, you know, a writing group, whatever it is, uh, writing is such a solitary yeah. process. You need to get a voice you trust, not
0: just any voice, but you need to get a right. voice you
1: trust in there to help you see the forest for the trees.
0: Yes. Um, so I just wanted to go back briefly to in the beginning, you mentioned that you write organically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I've heard it described, I don't know if anyone said this to you, but some people are plotters, and some people are pantsers because they fly by the seat of their pants. Oh, I love it,
1: <laughs> so <yeah. laughs> I'm a panzer for yeah,
0: sure i I am too, and well, I think i'm somewhere I think everybody kind of falls in different places on the continuum, but um or on the spectrum right um so for me, I have an idea where the story is going, but i if I try to make a strict outline, it does not work for me. I just, com- I go completely off it and the characters do what they want to do. So, <laughs>
1: oh, no. And good for you that you let them do that. Yes. I think that's the
0: mark of I a true, do. a true writer for sure. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So to finish up, who is your favorite historical fiction author? And do you have, mm. can you share maybe one of the best historical novels you've read this year, or I know you said you're not committed. Oh, I mean, I read other kinds of fiction too, besides historical. Oh, but, no, no, that's but, fine. <laughs> but if you read enough historical to, to give us.
1: Yeah. I'm trying. I always, I hesitate when people ask me these questions. I read so much and then I forget yeah. what I've read. Um, <laughs> and William Kennedy, uh, Ironweed. Mm. I want to say that was the thirties. I believe I could be off on that. Um, I, I have to tell you that book. I remember reading that book before I started writing and thinking, wow, you can do that. I mean, mm. you know, he pushed the boundaries. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it opens no, in I a haven't. cemetery. Oh, it's, it's really, it's a good read. I, I recommend it highly, but okay. it opens in a cemetery where, where, you know, the main character is, is he just has a day job to do some digging, but suddenly mm-hmm. the, people underground are getting nervous as he gets closer because it's his family and you sort of get some of their thoughts. And, and I just remember thinking, my God, you can do that. Like Mm -hmm. give, give thoughts to the dead. Like it just blew my mind that you could, you know, out. like, I, I mean, I just always been a rule follower and I never knew you could break outside of that. So, mm. so that book for sure made a great impression on me. Um, I read a book and I have to say, uh, you know, just up front, that it's a very difficult read and there's a lot of child trauma in there. So mm. for people who can't handle that, uh, certainly, you know, just be warned, but right. a book called Ruby and okay. it's by Cynthia Bond. And that book I've read two or three times now, um, probably three times. Uh, I finished reading it, and I started all over again as soon as I finished reading it. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, the story is, I mean, there is no question because there's uh, definitely childhood trauma in there. And when I read about the author, she had personal experience with, with um child trafficking. So Mm. it definitely comes from a place of pain. But the writing is exquisite. It's just, it just, I mean, jumps off the page. It's so Mm. beautiful. Um so I I recommend that book highly, but I also want people to understand what they're getting into. Uh and you know it's it's a difficult read. But um, those are two that I absolutely love. I mean, I could keep going, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's two is good. Okay. There are so many great books. It's my TBR is very long.
1: Yeah. I will say though, when I'm writing, I don't read historical fiction. I try to read books that are as um, different from what I'm writing as possible. Mm. Um, I still want to be inspired by the craft and learn but I, you know, uh, uh, you know, particularly like I'm not going to pick up a book on the 1950s right now right? Um, because I just don't want to be influenced. Right. I understand that. Yeah. So I'm careful. Right. I might read something that's medieval or, I, you know, so uh, yeah, it's not that I don't read historical at all, but I, I try to stay away from the time period.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Barb, this was a good conversation. Can ah. you... Tell our listeners where they can find "Sing in the Morning, Cry at Night" and "All Waiting is Long." Absolutely, and, and what I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I, I was going to say also where you, they can find you online if you're on social media. And
1: absolutely, location. yeah, both books are available uh, at any bookstore. You can find them. My preference is independent bookstores, just because I feel like we have to yes. support them. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can also go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can go to my publisher's website, Akashic, and find them there. So they're definitely they're around. They're in libraries. If you can't afford the book, but you would like to read the book, they're they're there. So you know, look around. Um, they're available in print. They're available uh, as eBooks. They're also audio books. Oh, that's great. And uh, you can even get them in Dutch. Because, uh, (laughs) well, the first book came out uh, this past year in um, the Netherlands. So that's been kind of fun. cool. Uh, And I am online. I have a Facebook author page, Barbara J. Taylor Author. I am on Twitter, Barbara J. Taylor. And I keep promising myself that I'm going to do more with Instagram one of these (laughs) days. So we'll see what happens there. And I have a website, barbarajtaylor.com. And if anybody, you know, you're reading the book and you have a question, you want to ask the author, you can email me there and I try to get back to everybody. So um, it's really kind of fun to hear from the readers.
0: Yeah, it always
1: is. Yeah, isn't it? You know.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. This was fun.
0: Well, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Barbara J. Taylor. I certainly did. Um, I just want to remind you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please go subscribe to the podcast and then leave a rating and a review. That would be awesome. That would really help grow my listeners. Share it on your social media or just share it with your friends. Send them a, a text or an email with a link to this show in it and let them know about it. Also, go to my website at alisontreat.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-I-T dot com. You can find links to all my social media platforms there, and just keep up with me. You can also sign up for my newsletter. Next week, be sure to join me for a conversation with Misu Andrews. She's an award-winning author of biblical fiction. And whatever you do, keep reading historical fiction, because Robert Heinlein said, A generation which ignores history has no past and no future.